Um, this afternoon, um, we're continuing our series in James, which is entitled uh, Faith That Works. We're thinking about what does it mean to have a faith which is not just head knowledge, but it has a, a genuine impact on what you think, how you behave, how you treat other people. Um, a faith which is not just wishful thinking, but is actually powerful and transformative and challenging, both to ourselves and, and to others. And so this afternoon, I'm um, looking at two verses in James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. And this message is entitled, A, um, a Patient Faith. And I'm kind of struck on the idea of preaching about patience in an age of 24-hour supermarkets, microwave meals, and drive through coffee shops. You know, patience is, is not really a characteristic of the society in which we live in. Um, in, in these days. But uh, let's look at this passage and let's see what God would say to us about patience this afternoon. So James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, and it says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Amen. Let's pray. Again, Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, James has already said that we shouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we should be doers of it as well. And so I pray just now that, as Mark has already prayed for me, that what I say would be clear, but it would come from you and would not just be myself. Pray that it would not simply be a case of me telling others what to do, but all of us would sit under your word and that we would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, be able to put it into practice, uh, that your word would be life-giving and powerful and transforming. And so we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So James chapter 5, verse 7 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. So, just to give us a bit of a context for what we are going to be looking at this afternoon and to give us a couple of questions to think about. I just want to take a couple of, uh, a couple of minutes just to go through this verse. I'm not going to go through the whole, all two verses word by word, but just for a, a minute, I want us to focus pretty much word for word or phrase for phrase on what this verse says. So it starts off by saying, therefore... So immediately we understand that there's a connection with what we're about to read in verses 7 and 8 with the six verses that went before. And last week, TJ spoke on those verses. And those verses were pretty much a, almost an Old Testament prophetic um, uh, condemnation of the, the rich and the powerful who, rather than using their wealth for good or for, for being positive, they used their wealth and they used their position of power and the privilege that goes with it, to exploit and to oppress other people. So therefore, these verses are a response to that. If this is how people behave towards you, how are you going to behave in, in, in response, in return? So he says, therefore, brothers and sisters. Now again, as T.G. pointed out, last week those words were, uh, the verses were concerned with non-Christians 
who were, who were exploiting and oppressing people. But now James is pivoting 180 degrees and he's turning back to Christians. And he's saying, well, how are you as Christians going to respond to the, to the evil um, that you see in the world? What are you going to do um, in the face of evil and injustice? And then he says, be patient. And if we're honest this afternoon, that has to raise the first question we're going to look at this afternoon. How is patience an appropriate response to evil and injustice? Because we live in a world, we see in the news all the time, if, if people have a cause, if people believe that they're seeing evil or injustice um, or, or abuse or something like that, then the reaction in, in society is to, to rise up and it might be to, to you know, go and th- you know, put your name on a petition. It might be to go out in the street and protest. But we also see in the news that for some people, they are so enraged or have such a sense of injustice that for them to challenge that injustice involves, it might be chaining themselves to something. It might be going and, and defacing property. It might be turning up, as you saw this week in the news, turning up at the Chelsea Flower Show of all places and throwing orange powder all over the place. So for James to say, right, how are you going to respond to to evil and injustice? Well, be patient. It sounds kind of weak. It sounds quite passive. How is patience a response, a proper response, a right response to evil, to injustice, to greed, to selfishness, and other things that we see in the world? And then James says, be patient until the Lord's coming. And there's our second question. What is it about the Lord's return, second coming, whatever you want to call it, what is it about the the, the second coming, the Lord's return, that means that patience is, is relevant to patience? What is it about the Lord's return that encourages patience? So, with those thoughts in mind, with that context, with those questions, let's start and look what it means to have a patient faith. And I want to start by suggesting this afternoon that what James is saying to us is that we need to start by being patient with others. It's easy to make a connection, or it can be easy to make a connection, not necessarily a right one, between the condemnation of the rich and the powerful who are abusing um, the weak and the poor and the Lord's uh, return. Because the Bible makes it clear that one of the main features of the, the second coming is punishment of evil and the reward of the righteous. So we'll be reading passages like Revelation chapter 20. Um, these, these words, John who wrote Revelation says, I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what is written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death in Hades, or death in hell, gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. So here's this idea of Jesus comes back and it's a time of judgment. And again, if you're familiar with with your Bible, you might know the parable of what's called the sheep and the goats, where again, the, the idea is that people are in front of God and they're separated into two groups. 
And Jesus, on one hand, condemns one group. In similar words to James, those who, who ignored uh, or worse, oppressed those who were poor, those who were hungry, um, who ignored those who were in need, whether it was physically or whether it was emotionally. And on the other hand, he turns and he congratulates and he blesses those who fed the hungry, who cared for the poor, who visited those who were in prison, who tried to help the sick, and so on. And unfortunately, there are some Christians that are so fixated on this idea and associate the return of Jesus with the idea of a, a future judgment of non-believers that rather than being um, in, encouraged to share the gospel so that people will receive grace and not judgment, instead, it's like they want to buy this big box of popcorn and think that when Jesus comes back, they're just going to sit there watching these people being condemned. And I want to say this afternoon, if there are anybody with that kind of idea, oh, so many things I could say, but let's just be polite and say that you won't like this passage. The word is, I keep saying patient, the word that is used here in, 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 the, in the Greek literally means to be long-tempered, to be not easily provoked to temper. It's often translated in other places as long-suffering. But I just want to show, share with you some, some other verses where the word patience is used. It doesn't matter whether we're looking at the English or whether we're looking at the Greek. It's the same word, just to get some understanding of, the, of how the Bible as a whole looks at the idea of patience. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 says this, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Now, there's a thought, be patient with everyone. As I said this morning, generally we are sympathetic, we're empathetic towards those who are, who are down, who are struggling emotionally, that we are sympathetic towards those who are weak, and we generally are find it easy to be patient with them. The idle and the disruptive. Do you ever get the feeling that God has put some people in your life for the specific purpose of teaching you patience? I see you laugh. Have you ever asked yourself, has God put me in someone else's life to teach them patience? Mm. Another example, Ephesians chapter 4. It says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And there's this idea of, of being loving, about being long-suffering towards other people. And the idea of love brings us to the third verse, which is 1 Corinthians 13. And again, this is a passage that most of us instantly recognize as being the great passage all about all about love. And look what the first description of love turns out to be. Love is patient. Then love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. And it goes on to say other things like it does not keep a record of wrongs and so on. So if patience is the first characteristic of love, what does that say about the first characteristic of impatience? So when James is saying to people, look, 
I know and I understand that there, there are those who are, who are mistreating you, who are abusing you, and, but be patient. What he's saying to his, to his readers is that we're not to allow the evil and the injustice that we experience at the hands of others to turn us into hateful, bitter, angry people who are looking forward to them getting what they deserve when Jesus comes back. Let's remember that as we wait for the Lord's return, none of us want what we deserve when Jesus comes back. So, we have to be patient. We have to be um, long-suffering um, towards other people. But not only are we to be patient with others, we have also to be patient with ourselves. James goes on and says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. Now, in Scotland, we take rain for granted. Today is an exception. You know, we're so used to rain. We, you know, we, as I said, we, we just take it for, for granted. I've often said to folk that the, one of the best lines in the film Braveheart is where somebody says, it's good weather in Scotland when the rain falls straight down. But in the Middle East, um, there were only two main times of the year when it actually rained. One was autumn. And one was spring. So the farmer would plant his seed towards the end of the year, um, somewhere around about um, October, November time. And then he would wait for that, that early rain, that first rain uh, that James speaks about. And when that rain came, it fell on the seed on the ground and it germinated the seed. It started the growing process. Now, in some cases, that might mean you might see some small shoots coming out of the ground. In other cases, it meant you saw nothing. And then winter came. And, of course, remember, again, winter is a relative term in the Middle East. It just means that it, was, it wasn't scorching hot that it would just dry up the ground and kill the seed, but it was warm enough that, again, it would just keep it going and, and, and germinating. And the seed would sit there until this latter rain that would come early enough in April and May. And the second rain then would be the, the rain that actually caused the seed to fully sprout and fully grow and to fully um, become, um, become a crop that could later on be harvested. And this picture, this idea of, a, of an early and a latter rain hides a spiritual picture um, that James um, is uh, alluding to. There are some people who, who come to faith in Christ, they commit them, they, they recognize what Christ has done, they accept him as Lord and Savior. There are signs of new life, of growth and, and, and transform, transformation. They, they, there are maybe things that they stop doing, there are maybe new habits that, that they develop, they come along to, to church, they're part of the fellowship, and then things just seem to stop. And it's like they've gone dormant and it lasts that way for years or for months or for years sometimes. And they're living off of that early rain. They've had an initial experience of God's grace and God's goodness, but then everything just plateaus off and it's almost like they're spinning their wheels. 
Then there are those who, who come to faith and they grow and they flourish spiritually. They, they mature in their faith. They grow in obedience. They become committed in, in service because they've experienced the latter reign of the Holy Spirit. You literally see the, the fruit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And Jesus described that like this. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth chokes the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling in good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. So that's why James is encouraging his readers to be patient as they wait for the Lord. And that's why he commands them to strengthen your hearts. Similar words are used in Hebrews chapter 19, sorry, chapter 13, verse 19, where, he say, where the writer says, Don't be led by various kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace. So in other words, when Paul is, sorry, when James is saying, strengthen your hearts because the Lord's return is near, it's a call to, to put into practice sound teaching. So as we wait for the Lord's return, James is saying, try to say two things here. One is, don't let the, the evil that you, that you experience, that, that maybe that you uh, experience firsthand or the evil that you see round about you, have a negative effect on you and make you worse off or make you a bad person. Instead, actively seek the, the Holy Spirit to work in you and to let God's Word transform you and change you and make you fruitful um, and make you a, a witness of what God can do in a person, even in a world surrounded by evil and injustice. And today when it's Pentecost Sunday, it's worth pointing out that what are the fruits of the Holy Spirit? They're love, joy, peace, and patience. And we're back to this idea. Again, it was one of the things we were singing about, about, uh, about our battle being the Lord's and not ours. God doesn't just tell us to do something. And then says, good luck. Every time God says to do something, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us the power to put into practice what he asks us to do. And it's not simply a case of you must do better, and if you don't, you sit there in guilt and condemnation. It's about recognizing that we can't obey God on our own, and therefore we need to ask God by his Holy Spirit to make it, to, to work in us and to change us and transform us. So I need to ask this afternoon, are we more focused on God's judgment of other people rather than looking at ourselves? Not obsessive and not beating ourselves up in guilt, but looking at ourselves and, and asking, right, where do I, where have I not let God in? Where do I still need to let God work in me and change me and transform me? Where do I still need to let that latter rain in and soak through me and help me to grow as a follower of Christ? So we have to be patient with others. We have to be patient with ourselves. And lastly, this afternoon, we have to be patient with the future. So James says that we are to um, strengthen our hearts because the Lord's coming is near. 
And there are some who have questioned whether or not the early church mistakenly believed that the time between the Lord's first coming and his second coming was going to be really, really short, possibly within their own lifetime. And then it was almost, they argued that they realized, well, no, that's not the case. So now we need to rethink our, our, our theology and our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. It was interesting this week as I've read different commentaries, I've, you know, I've read one or two where that was the line that was taken, you know, suddenly the church wakes up and realizes, hmm, Jesus isn't coming back soon, you know, and you think, so what do we do now? Well, I want to give two answers to that idea. First of all, the early church taught that it was impossible for them to know when Christ came back because Jesus himself, when he was asked, said, I don't know. I can tell you what to look out for, but I can't give you a specific time. Only the Father knows that. He tells me I'll know and I'll come back, but I don't know. So the church, the early church said, right, if we don't know when Jesus is coming back, then maybe the best thing to do is to live every day as if maybe today's the day. So that if Jesus does come back, one, we're not going to be caught out, we're not going to be surprised, but more importantly, neither are we going to be embarrassed about how we've actually lived. Instead of thinking, I've got years yet to control my temper, I've got years yet to learn patience, or so on. Maybe I need to start putting these things to practice now, so that when Jesus comes back, he can see that I've been trying to live to please him, that I don't need to be ashamed of how I've lived. Martin Luther, who was a 16th century preacher and teacher, said this, Preach and live as if Jesus was, coming, was crucified yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is returning tomorrow. So the early church said, live every day ready for Jesus coming back. Secondly, the early church was very well aware that God's timing was not their timing. And in an age of 24-hour supermarkets, microwave meals, and drive-through coffee shops, maybe that's something else we need to remember. They saw the delay in the second coming as a sign of God's grace to allow as many people as possible to come to faith, to escape judgment, and to receive God's grace. So, Peter, in our father of Jesus, says this, The Lord does not delay his promises. Some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So this afternoon, again, questions I want to ask you, questions I want to ask myself is, are we actively looking forward to the return of Christ? Or is it just something that lives in our head but doesn't actually live in our hearts? It's, is the return of Jesus just some vague, far-off concept? Or are we actually living in anticipation of his return? Do we actually have an understanding that the same Jesus that we read about in the Bible, the Jesus who was able to change water into wine, the Jesus who was able to open the eyes of the blind and allow the deaf to hear, the same Jesus who raised people from the dead, the same Jesus who died on a cross and was raised again and has ascended into heaven, one day every single one of us will see him. Every one of us. Do we actually believe that? 
And does that thought make us consciously want to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to grow and mature spiritually? Does that thought that Jesus is coming back motivate us to share with others who he is, what he's done for us, or are we indifferent to what his return will mean for those who haven't accepted him as Lord and Savior? And if Jesus returns today, will you be ready to meet him as Lord and Savior? For some, that means taking that first step and asking Christ to come into their lives and to ask him to be to take control. That's what it means to ask Jesus to be Lord. And as we've said this afternoon, that's not an end in itself. That's just the beginning. It's an important beginning. It's where we have to start by acknowledging that Jesus died for us and that we cannot stand before God and say, well, I've tried to be a good person. I've done this and I've done that. You know, I've been the person that looks in on my elderly neighbors. I try not to smoke. I try not to gamble. I try not to swear and all these things. It doesn't cut it. There's a verse in Isaiah that says that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. You know, and when we try and claim that we are a good person with the best will in the world, when we stand before a holy, sinless God who died so that we could be forgiven, to compare what we've done and to suggest that that's good enough to get us into heaven, it's like trying to compare a match to the sun. It doesn't work. So have we made that first step today about asking Jesus to come into our life? And if we have, then my second question is, are you still living off the, that early rain? You know, the, I can say I became a Christian, and I won't let you fill in the blanks, but I became a Christian when I was 14. And it wasn't yesterday, you can tell. But if I was still the same person today as I was a, as a teenager, how has God made any difference in my life? And that's the challenge for all of us. As I said, not that we should be living again in, you know, in condemnation and guilt and everything else, but again, are we taking that spiritual discipline of looking at ourselves, not comparing ourselves to anyone else, but simply asking, right, Lord, where is it that you need to still work in me? So this afternoon, we have this opportunity to respond. For some, as I said, it might be you want to maybe come and speak to me or, or Mark or TJ about how do you make that first step of asking Jesus into your life? How do you begin that process of growing as a Christian and letting the Holy Spirit work in you, letting the Holy Spirit grow his fruit and his gifts in you? For those of us who have, have, have gone past that initial stage, there's an opportunity this afternoon to come to this table, which is a symbol of what Christ has done for us, that the, the bread represents his body that is given. He died in our place so that we could be forgiven. And the wine is a symbol of forgiveness. The Bible says that, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins because the life is in the blood. And as we take the cup, it's a symbol not only of the fact that Jesus has poured out his blood so that we could be forgiven. It's a picture of us taking in the new life of Jesus as the Holy Spirit works and transforms us. 
But there's also another important aspect to this table because when we come to this table and we take this bread and we take the wine, Jesus says we proclaim the Lord's death, which is the foundation for our forgiveness, but we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Every time we take communion, we are not only looking back at the cross and what Christ has done, we're not only looking at ourselves here in the present and asking what am I, how am I responding to the cross? But we're looking forward to when the Lord comes. So past, present, and future meet at that table this afternoon. In a fallen and evil world, are we being patient with others? Are we being patient with ourselves? And are we being patient with the future as we wait for the God of justice to return and fulfill his promise to make all things new? And that includes making us new as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the power of the cross. We thank you that through it, we can be forgiven, that we can be accepted by you, that we can enter into a new relationship with you. And we thank you that you've said in your word that when we, when we, commit ourselves to you and serving you and following you, that you give us the gift of the Holy Spirit, that he works in us to will what, uh, to do and to will what you have said. As TJ reminded us earlier on this afternoon, that we are called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but we do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we do pray today that even if we find your word challenging, we pray that you would give us the humility to commit ourselves to your Holy Spirit and let him work and change and transform us, that we will be patient with others and with ourselves, that we will hold the idea of the Lord's return, not just in our heads, but it will be a powerful truth that will strengthen and encourage our hearts. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.